turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel, we're going to be in the Old Testament this evening. And if you're like me, you wanted life to go your way. Yet no matter how hard you tried to win at the race, to beat the clock, to get the job, life seemed to have a mind of its own, didn't it? It didn't matter if I was racing with my friends to the end of the block, I would end up losing my grip on my pedals, look down, try to gain control, and then look up just to see me heading over a steep ravine. (laughs) Or there was a time when I was in a three-person baton race from my elementary school, and we were leading until I dropped the baton. Even when I tried to make friends at school, I would cut up in class making jokes to try to make friends with my classmates. Well, it worked for a little bit until the type of attention that I received was actually from the teacher who would send me down that long hallway of shame (laughs) to the principal's office for detention. And when I think about my life, I also think about prayer. I think back to the days of many of my prayers And I would fall into the habit of praying things like, God, help me. God, lead me. Please don't let me get in trouble. Don't let them find out about this. It was just all about me, me, me. Have you been there? Amen. Amen. And we all have had those prayers. You and I have prayed the prayer of, oh, Lord, heal my sister. Or God, help me get out of the shady negotiation at my office. (laughs) However... There were some prayers that we didn't see answered, weren't there? And they were, or maybe they were answered, but in a way that we didn't feel comfortable with or we didn't expect. And that is actually when we start to doubt God or question his motives. But deep down inside of us, if we are truly honest with ourselves, we're actually saying, God owes me. God owes me an explanation. God owes me an answer. God owes me the parking space. God owes me a clean bill of health. God owes me a happy life. Well, tonight we are going to be looking into a life of a man who had it all owed to him. But one tragic thing would happen after another. The cards that he was dealt ended up not falling in his favor. And yet the Lord will show us how In his brokenness, God was able to restore this man and show compassion upon him, just like he showed compassion on you and me. Now, I have never missed, oh, I try not to miss the first 15 minutes of a movie because you know what that's like. You get in there and everyone else is laughing and you're going, what is going on? Who is this person in front of me? So I'm saying that because when we get into 2 Samuel, we want to look at kind of the setting of what has transpired. The reason why we're in 2 Samuel and the reason why we have such a strange name of a man 
faced with David. So here's the setting of 2 Samuel. If we could just kind of make it into this category, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there are three characters. There is Samuel, of course, named, the book is named after him. There is King Saul, and there is a young man named David. And what we find here in 1 Samuel at the very beginning is, oh, excuse me. What we find here at the beginning is that the people of Israel used to be in tribes and God had sent judges that would raise themselves up to deliver them during times of war. And so in the very beginning of 1 Samuel, we find a young lady named Hannah who is suffering, not able to have a child. And she is wanting so desperately to have this child, and she wants to have a baby so bad, but she is being ridiculed by someone else in her family. And she finally prays to the Lord, and the priest, Eli, sees her and thinks that she is drunk. And he says, you know, he kind of scolds her, but then she says, you don't understand, I'm, I'm of sorrow. And so she asked the Lord, Lord, if you would send me, if you would give me a baby, a, a boy, if you would take my reproach from me, then I will hand him over to you and he will serve you for the rest of his life. And so it happened that she was pregnant with Samuel. And Samuel became, from the time he was very little, he became the first prophet the, the first mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel. And now they have a prophet, which is an, a mediator between God and man. Interesting, isn't it? And so during this time, Samuel is getting blessed by God. He's being able to speak, and the Lord shows favor on everything that he does. But the people of Israel began to look around at the, at the kingdoms around them, and they say, you know what? God owes me. God owes me a king. God owes me that we would look just like the nation next to us. And so now Samuel is confronting them, saying, don't do this thing. God is your king. God is your king. He's the one that will lead you. But they say, no, 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 no. We want a king. So God tells Samuel, let it happen. I want you to raise up this young man named Saul who was tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> he was a very handsome man. And he was raised up, but as time goes on, Saul takes things into his own hands. And he says, God owes me. God owes me a kingdom. God owes me uh, gold. God owes me... Uh, horses from Egypt. God owes me riches from heaven. God owes me prestige and popularity. So he begins to do this, but in the same token, he rebels against God. He does not do what God tells him to do. He is disobedient. And so God begins to pull back his spirit from Saul. And during this time, the Philistines come together uh, against Israel and they're fighting. And of course, you know that classic story of David and Goliath. David approaches as a young shepherd. He's the lowest of his family. He's a shepherd, which means he doesn't smell quite well. 
his father basically doesn't even talk about him until Samuel says, do you have any other children? And he says, oh yeah, I got my, my son. He's out in the field. So he gets him and David is anointed king. And then David goes and he wages war against Goliath. He fights him and defeats him. And now all of a sudden, Saul is feeling a little bit of jealousy because everybody's talking about David. They're talking about how he has destroyed thousands. And so Saul begins to get very, very vengeful. Well, David has two things, two quivers or two arrows in his quiver. One is he marries Saul's daughter, Michal. Michal is a beautiful woman. He marries her. He has a best friend named Jonathan. And no, I am not doing this sermon because it's my name. (laughs) I am not doing it. I'm doing it because the story is incredible. Because from this time, from 1 Samuel all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 31, we have this, this intense struggle where Saul is trying to kill David and David's running for his life. But in the middle of it, Jonathan comes to David and he he says, I want you to make a covenant with me. And this is really important because this is a, this is a clincher for the story that we're about ready to look at. I want you to make a covenant with me that when you become king, that you will show loving kindness to me and my family. The heir to the throne is actually submitting himself to the rightful king, King David, and says, make a covenant with me that when you become king, you will show kindness to me. And in 1 Samuel chapter 31, it says that the Philistines come and they wage war and they come hard against Saul. And Jonathan and two of his brothers are killed in the battle. It's a tragic story. And then Saul is running for his life and a random arrow hits him and mortally wounds him. And he tells his armor bearer, I want you to take your, not, I want you to take your blade and I want you to kill me because if the Philistines get a hold of me, they're going to play around with my dead body. And the armor bearer says, I can't do that to my Lord. So Saul falls on his own sword. That's another tragedy. The armor bearer does the same thing. And now the Philistines start heading towards Jerusalem. But in the meantime, the royal family, everyone that's left is freaking out. So can you imagine the palace now hearing, hey, the king is dead and so is his heir. And there is a young boy at the age of five named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is taken up by his nurse And through all of the craziness that's happening, everyone's running back and forth. The servants are grabbing whatever valuables they can. The Bible says that the nurse is holding Mephibosheth and they fall and Mephibosheth falls and breaks both of his legs. And now he is completely lame. Now he's got tragedy upon tragedy. He's lost his father. He's lost his grandfather. He's lost the heir to the throne and he's lost his dignity. And here's where we pick up. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, 
They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of uh, Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given you your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of, kings, of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Now, we've seen the whole picture of this story, but I want us to look at even further. I want us to dive down into this story because in all honesty, this is the Old Testament gospel. You know, we talk about the gospel all the time. We preach it from rooftops and in safe ways, and we get to hear it on Sundays but sometimes it loses its power because we talk about it so often. But we need to realize what the gospel is. Jesus, even at the end of his, uh, at the end of his time on the earth, he spoke to two of these disciples who were walking on the road of, to Aeneas. And the Bible says that he opened their eyes to see everything that was in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Which means Jesus was preaching to them the gospel throughout the Old Testament. What an experience to be there. What would it have been like to hear Jesus talking about himself throughout the Old Testament and yet right here in this exact time and space in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we have the gospel and let's find out about it. Now, first off, as I mentioned before, the royal family is scattered. And there is a custom from king to king, whoever takes power, unlike America, America is very strange in the way that they handle it, because the former president still gets the power, the liberty, the secret service, and all the amenities of before when he was in office. But back then in the Old Testament, if a king took over power, they went right to the royal family and they destroyed them. They wiped every one of them out. And the reason why they did that 
was so that there wouldn't be a temptation of that royal family to start a coup with the new government. And just like that, in direct parallel, we ourselves had our own king and our own country, and it was called me. It was called you. You lived in your own country. You did things much like Saul, and I did things much like Saul because we were owned and we owed, we were owed everything. We were owed fame and glory and a little bit of comfort. And our kingdom, just like Saul's, had fallen. And your life and my life was cruising along until that foreclosure happened, until that turn of events changed your future, un- until that person hurt you so severely that you couldn't go outside. That vice brought you to your knees. And you were the king of your own castle, but your castle is falling apart. Your kingdom that once was established is now fallen. And the new king, Jesus the Christ, stepped in and began to take back property that was his in the first place. And like King David, Jesus didn't owe us anything. We don't deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve to be a husband because my life was broken. My life was fractured and so was yours. But this story isn't over because it's in these moments when your dreams have come smashing down to the floor that God steps in to do to us what we could never do by ourselves. Now let's look at the Samuel, the second Samuel passage and find out what Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story. In verses one through three, we have something interesting. Again, it is King David seeking to fulfill his covenant. King David asks, is there anyone still of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, first, remember the covenant I mentioned to you about the covenant. The old covenant was one in which we failed royally. And because of that, we die. But the new covenant is that Jesus died so that we could live. And we heard that before. That's the new covenant. But this word kindness here, this word kindness he uses several times in this passage is the same word for goodness. Just like in Psalms 23, it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness, this is a loving kindness that only God could give. This loving kindness was not a loving kindness as a father or a mother shows to their child. This is a loving kindness of looking down at a pitiful dog, all dirty, disheveled, broken foot, and showing compassion and mercy and pity. This is that same kindness that is shown to us. And In verse 3b, the ending of verse 3b, Ziba says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Now here's the interesting thing about it. We're going to start to break down each one of these names. Mephibosheth in the Hebrew means dispeller of shame or one who eliminates shame. How ironic because he's full of it. He's full of shame. He's not a dispeller of shame. He's actually... He's actually received a whole bunch of shame. 
It doesn't fit his situation, does it? He also, in the Bible, also has another name, Merib Baal. Merib means to contend or to wage war. And Baal, we've all heard. Baal is the god that they worshipped. And it means to exercise dominion or lord over. So keep those in mind. Now, Mephibosheth, here's some facts about him. He is the grandson of David's enemy. He is lame from the fall. He will not be productive in life. He lives in another man's house, the house of Mahir. Mahir means house of slavery. Mahir is the son of Amiel, and this is the only redemptive part of it. Amiel's name in in the Bible in Hebrew means my kinsman is God. My kinsman is God. He lives in the town of Lodabar, which means no pasture. It means he's nomadic. It means he's living in a desert. He has no hope and no future. So here's how we can apply this to our hearts. You and I have have the name given to us. And we try to eliminate our sin and our shame by covering up with our own efforts. You and I are enemies of God through the sin of our family line of Adam. You and I are broken because of the fall. We have become lame, unable to stand upon our own two spiritual feet. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We live in the house of slavery. John 8, 34 says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And sin has bail over us, which is dominion or lordship. Romans 6 tells us that we were dominated, we were lorded over by sin. But through Christ's work on the cross, he has defeated that. Amen? And the Bible also says, all we who are sheep have gone astray, each to his own. We have lived in no pasture. We've been sheep without a shepherd. We've been spread out. And the application is God has made a covenant with us. It's a new covenant. And he swore by himself, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6, 13 through 18. He says, by two immutable things has he swore to himself, though he could not swear to anyone higher than himself, he swore to himself. You shall be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's speaking of Jesus. See, the truth of the matter is God wants nothing from us. God has no expectations. He wants nothing from us. As we look at 2 Samuel 9, 5, we notice something very interesting here. It says, so King David had him brought from Lodabar. That whole thing right there, there's two words, had him brought They mean two things. It means stretch out your hand and seize. So King King David stretches out his hand, just like God the the Father stretched out his right hand, Jesus Christ, and seized us from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of his son in whom he loves. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6, Mephibosheth's response Look at this. It says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, 
came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. This guy, this guy was riddled with shame. This guy dragged himself into the court of David. And he wouldn't even be able to put his head up to look at the king. He prostrated himself before King David. And this is what we do when we hear for the first time that Jesus Christ is God, is that we fall to our knees, paying him full homage. We can't even look into his eyes. You remember, remember in the gospels, it tells us that Peter was on the boat and Jesus said, cast out a little bit onto the boat so that I may preach the gospel. And as he's preaching, Peter turns to him and says, get away from me, God, for I am a sinner. I am undone. That is the first sign of a life that's changed. It's a life of repentance. And this is what happened with Mephibosheth as he entered into the courts, as he realized, I'm an unworthy person. I don't even belong here. And he, pow- he bows down to pay him honor. The, the word there for honor is reverence or worship. He worships. So there's two responses that we must have when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, we must repent of our sins. We must turn in sorrow from those actions that we have done. And then we turn to worship him as we did just a few minutes ago, worshiping him saying, Christ is enough for us. But notice David's response to Mephibosheth. David calls him Mephibosheth. He doesn't call him, hey, enemy. Hey, lame person. Hey, reject. Hey, you. Hey, what's your face? He calls him the man who expels or pushes away shame. He calls him by his name, but he reinstates him by saying, you are going to be one who will expel shame. I will take that shame from you. And he says, your servant saying, I'm here to serve you. That's our response. God doesn't owe us anything. God gave us everything. So I would say that to you, that tonight, if you've walked in here and you've thought, you know what? I am just a statistic. I'm just another divorcee. I'm just another widow or a widower. I'm I'm just a mental disorder. I'm just a mistake. The Bible says, no, you're not. You are not defined by your fractured life. The Bible says that you are not a mistake, that you are perfectly and wonderfully made. You are not the problem. You are not a nobody, and you sure are not the center of the universe. And Jesus himself calls us by our name. He calls us by our name, but in Revelation, it tells us that he gives us another name. It's concealed. No one else knows that name. But one day when we get to be with him, he will give us that new name. He knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. It reminds me of a story of a young boy. There was a young boy who decided that he would build a sailboat. And he worked really hard day and night, to get the sailboat all ready. And then he tells his dad, dad, I want to go to the ocean and I want to cast out my sailboat. And his dad comes with him and he puts the sailboat into the ocean. 
and it goes back, it, go, it continues on and the, and the air picks up and the sailboat continues to proceed and the kid's all excited, it's working, it's working. And then all of a sudden he realizes that he cannot get his sailboat back. It continues to go on out into the ocean. And so he goes home crying, his dad trying to comfort him. A couple weeks later, this young boy is walking by a store and he notices in the window, there's a sailboat. And he goes in and he grabs the sailboat and he turns it over and he sees his name arched in the bottom. And he sees the scratch in which the time in which he was working so hard on it and it fell on the ground. And he says, my sailboat, my sailboat. And he puts it under his arm and he begins to walk out of the store. And the owner says, hey, hey, boy, mm -mm. you're going to have to pay for that because I had to pay for that sailboat. And the boy was very, very sad. And so he decided, hey, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to pull out the loose change from my pockets. I'm going to work for my dad. I'm going to try to make, make this money. And he gets enough money. He saves it up and he runs back to the store and he buys his sailboat back. And the owner turns and as he's turning and watch, watching this young boy having, having such a precious hold on his sailboat, he hears the boy say two things. You're mine twice. You're mine because I made you. And twice because I bought you. Twice because I bought you. Jesus knows your name. And he made you. He made you from the beginning of time. He formed you in your mother's womb. He sewed you together with sinews and capillaries and veins and everything. He made everything about you. He knows all the things about you, but you sailed off into the ocean of your own sin. And then Jesus said, I'm going to buy you. I'm going to buy you with my precious blood. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And now Jesus holds you in his arms and he says, you're mine twice. Once because I made you and twice because I bought you. David does a couple things as we go on to verses seven. David does an amazing thing to reinstate Mephibosheth in all of his sorrows and hardship. The first thing he does is he says these words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of all the scriptures that are found in the Bible of do not be afraid for I'm with you? Does that remind you of the fact of the disciples on the boat and the waves of the sea and Jesus walks past them and they say, they say, it is a ghost. And Jesus says, do not be afraid, it is I. It is I is ego I me in Greek, which means I am. Do not be afraid, I am the I am. As it says also in Isaiah 54, 4, do not fear for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced for you will not be put to shame for you will forget the shame of your youth. God is reinstating you to let you know, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of your past, your future, or what you're faced with right now because he is in the boat with you. And the next thing David does is he says, for I will show, surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you 
all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. This is the restoration of the gospel. See, David does something incredible. He didn't have to do this to Mephibosheth. But what he does is he creates a place for Mephibosheth to dwell forever. This is the gospel. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus renewed us. And Jesus restores us. King David returns the property of King Saul, his enemy, to Mephibosheth. King David makes Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth and puts servants under him to provide for him a residual income for the rest of his life. King David placed Mephibosheth at the family table and had him live in the palace with David forever. He adopted him. And the main point for tonight, if we could look at all of this and tie it into one little nice little bow, the main point is God wants nothing from us but gave up everything for us so he wouldn't live without us. Let me say that again for, for some of you. God wants nothing from you, but gave up everything for you so that he wouldn't live without you. This is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. This is one of my favorites because I was Mephibosheth. I was broken from the fall. I was full of shame. And yet Jesus Christ picked me up out of my lowly state and he set me upon a rock which is higher than myself. And he looked eye to eye with me and he said, you are mine and I'm yours. I bought, I bought you with a price and I'm not letting you go and I'm going to restore that which the enemy stole from you, John. And he's saying that to you tonight. He's going to restore everything that Satan has ripped you off in. And he will put you in a place in which you are protected and safe and it is in the arms of our loving Savior. God, God's grace took you and I off the ground and onto the seat at his table. And God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, if we could actually say something, we owe God everything. What kind of people would be, we be if we got that deep down into our hearts? That we owe him everything. We owe him the breath in our lungs. We owe him the praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We owe him the bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that is in, in, in me, bless his holy name. And even the broken places. And notice that, that King David doesn't fix his legs. He had the power to do it. So Mephibosheth is always living with a remnant of the sinful nature. He's always living broken and he's always living living relying upon someone else to pick him up and put him on, onto the seat right next to David. And imagine the conversation around that table. Imagine Mephibosheth sharing with King David, man, I, I tell you, man, I was living in a world of no pasture and I lived in someone else's house and I ate their bread and I couldn't go out and, and get a job. 
And yet you, of all people, you who could easily have destroyed me, you brought me and you placed me and you adopted me into your family. You may have walked in here today thinking, what God, what, what am I to God? What am I to God? You see your own brokenness in your life. And for a long time, you defined yourself by your past, by your past sins, by your past hardships. And let me tell you that Jesus doesn't want us to play victims. He doesn't want us to walk into church, into the congregation of the assembled. He doesn't want us to walk into the saints and to begin to say, I'm just a victim of my standards, or everything that has happened to me is, be- is due to me, or I'm the cause of all my problems. What we should be doing is we should be walking in here, lifting up our hands and saying, King Jesus, you're my all in all. You're the one who's saved me. You're the one who's rescued me. You're the one who's delivered me, and everything that I have, I give to you. What an amazing church this could be. What an amazing opportunity that we have in front of us to continually remind ourselves that yes, we are broken, but we know who the healer is. And we can share, just like Mephibosheth could share, hey, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you how God rescued me. And lastly, for you who sit here and say, God owes me something. God owes me an explanation why so-and-so has passed away. God owes me an explanation why my circumstances have been this way. No, God doesn't owe you anything. God gave you everything. You didn't deserve it, and we don't deserve it, and that's the gospel of grace. That's the ravenous, scandalous grace that we live in. That we don't, that he doesn't owe us anything, except we owe him praise. We owe him power, our power, laying laying our lives down for him. And for us who are living in fear and failure in our pasts, I want you to know that you are covered by the blood of the lamb. You are protected by the king of the universe. You have been rescued. You've been restored and brought into right relationship with God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and ask the worship team to come up. Lord, Lord, this is a short message, but it has a point, Lord, to be reminded, Lord God, of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would, you would reawaken in us, Lord God, the gospel that saved us, that delivered us, that brought us out of bondage. That, have, that had brought us out of the house of slavery and into the king's house. That, Lord, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons of Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And, Lord, I pray that we would express ourselves and we would act in accordance to this gospel. That everything that we do, everything that we say, every attitude that we have towards our family, our relatives, our homes, Lord, would be places in which we worship you continually, in which our hearts continually bow and prostrate ourselves before you 
and say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would fill, us, fill our lungs with your Holy Spirit, that you'd fill our hearts with joy and gratitude for what you've given to us. And Lord, tonight, may we be charged with sharing our story with other people, telling them of the good graciousness and loving kindness of our great God and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.